Welcome to the Interdisciplinary Investigations Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Perrin, and we're recording from the WSCA Podcast Lab here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. In our first season of this podcast, we're focusing on the subjective and phenomenological experience of listening. The foundation of our investigation focuses on making sense of the world through the sounds and lack of sounds that we encounter in our daily interactions. How do we hear these sounds and how do we create meaning from them? How does listening help us understand the world and our place in it? So during this inaugural season, we're joined by educators, artists, musicians, scientists, contemplative practitioners, scholars, and activists who have tracked the importance of careful and engaged listening in a world that seems to enable scattered attention, disengagement, and displacement. Their insights reveal great lessons in the stories of sound. Today we're joined by Aaron Sheehan. Aaron is a professor of mindfulness studies at Drew University and a PhD candidate at Lesley University, working towards a doctoral degree in educational studies with a focus on contemplative pedagogy. She works with children, adolescents, teens, and their parents to bring mindfulness practice into the entire family dynamic. She's passionate about continuing to create digital mindfulness applications in today's world it's so tethered to technology and devices. And she brings mindfulness programs and instruction to businesses, schools, and clinical settings. She's a mother, a wife, artist, and a student of silence. Erin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to discussing my work. And Erin's joining us via the phone from her home state of New Jersey. Erin, um, if you could just start off by telling us a little bit more about you and your background and how you came to this world of contemplative pedagogy. Sure. Thank you. Um, this world for me began many years ago with my own diving into mindfulness practice, even when I didn't really know what name to give it many years ago in my early twenties, I would say um, this world of contemplative pedagogy and graduate work really started for me in a different way when I became um, a young mother and was at an author event actually on vacation in Cape Cod and was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to listen to a woman who shared her own practice of silence with all of us and in her book. And when she described this um, weekly practice she had with silence, it sort of opened up this new understanding of contemplative practice in a very basic, but very moving and meaningful way for me. I started getting involved in the world of mindfulness and meditation with children, which led me to a master's degree at Lesley University in mindfulness studies in 2015. From that work, I started my own business after graduation with a colleague of mine, and we started developing mindfulness programs for different populations that we encountered and reached out to. Um, from there, I worked in a clinical setting for a local doctor for about four years, once a week with her patients, directing them in their own mindfulness and meditation practices. At the same time, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to begin working at Drew University in their Casperson School of Graduate Studies, where I've developed two different courses for those graduate students in contemplative practice, um, both the theory and practice of silence and the new program, the new class that I just created and delivered called the Contemplative Professional, which takes that look into mindfulness practice um, into a new direction and a little bit deeper as these 
medical humanities students, theology students, and education students, we're really encountering continued challenges in today's world, pre-COVID and post-COVID, and really wanting to harness their capacities of mindfulness practice and awareness and able to bring it into their work settings and share it with others. Now that you are in a doctoral program at Lesley University, can you tell us a little bit about how silence is actually influencing your graduate work? What is it that you're looking to to investigate um, in the world of science of silence? Sure. Um, I would say that my graduate work is heavily influenced by this connection with silence and thinking about myself as a student of silence. The research that I'm doing both professionally and personally that I continue to do between the master's degree and now being a PhD candidate was continuously diving into these areas in our modern world that exist of people that are researching contemplative practices and their different ways of being implemented throughout society. So that research sort of kept me on the pathway. And then with the work that I'm doing at Drew, it became quite clear to me that I wanted to engage with my own research and dissertation and rejoined the Leslie community of scholars as a PhD candidate. Um, and silence really informs me in so many ways in this research. And I would say the first and probably the most powerful way that it has linked that work to silence is, is purely just the results of the classes that I'm teaching at Drew and what my students have been able to share with me. The students are from all different backgrounds and age groups and, and pre-code, especially different countries even, joining us online in my programs. And what I continue to find is adults of different ages doing meaningful work in the world with many different challenges. And when I introduce them to the theory and practice of mindfulness, and the, connecting them with their own practice, but also the neuroscience that exists and sort of breaking down how this came into modern society and why. There's usually most of the time an immediate visceral change, I would say, in these students. And specifically the way that they continue to express how they come to knowing, which was always sort of part of my hope with the courses. They started with this, let's just introduce mindfulness and the pathway and the things that I know and the researchers that are out there and this this wealth of knowledge and different um, examples that exist and sort of open those doors to my students. But what I really found was that their own way of coming to knowing what they were there studying for as graduate students really changed and became affected by it. So it was in that understanding as the years went on and I had different students come into the class that it became quite clear that I wanted to dig deeper into how silence did affect the way that we come, come to knowing. And then secondly, how that coming to knowing in that way when we feel connected to our inner worlds in a deeper, more authentic way, how that coming to knowing affected these professionals in their work that they did, how they were integrating mindfulness practices, not only with the way that they did their work, but the way that they did their work with others. And so that has become a core component of the doctoral research that I continue to engage with. And I, I want to make one note to, I, as I introduce you, I did mention that you were a mother. What I did not mention is that you were a mother of four. And so <laughs> a, a mother of four who is 
um, a, a full-time professor at Drew University and also a, a doctoral student as well. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how does your life that's so, you know, I would, I would imagine with four children and, and full-time student and full-time work, um, what have you learned about silence in your life personally? Where does it sit in your life and what have you learned about how it impacts you? Uh, great question. Um, I would say that being a mother of four growing children, two of which are teenagers now, and one of which is eyeing her way into college in about a year, the continued demands of parenting in today's world um, are, are, are rather large, especially with COVID and the micromanaging different decisions during a very difficult time uh, on the global on the global world as well. Um, I would say the way in which silence fits in specifically and personally for me is that it becomes a conduit of of wellness that's that's hard to sort of put your finger on except to say that I know when I'm not practicing and to continue to come back to this practice of silence is transformative and as a parent especially the onslaught of information and decisions, activities and stress and joys and all of those things becomes quite overwhelming. What I find is that my own practice of silence allows me much more clarity and awareness around what actually is. I find that one of the most difficult parts of being a human really exists on a, on a greater way for me as a parent which is this push and pull between the past and the future. I, I feel that as a parent, I'm constantly questioning myself, making sure that I'm making the right decisions. So that looking back at the past with regret and doubt, or looking forward to the future with anxiety and worry can be quite overwhelming. And it is here that I find that a silence practice really brings me back to the present moment and helps me to attend to what actually is. So that in that continued daily practice of meditation that I have, I find that ability to become more clear about what is what is real and in front of me and more aware of how I'm reacting to it. I have found that especially as a parent in, in this pandemic and post-pandemic world in, in, in schools and in just society, the level of reactivity that I feel like exists with all of us and the way that we react to each other is great and greater than it was before the pandemic. So even in just this realizing about reactivity and being able to slow it down, that's had the most dramatic effect on the way in which my meditation practice is coming to parenting is really just to be aware of it. And the minute that I say that out loud to people that I, that I come into contact with and just sort of just openly and generously offer this insight that I've had about how reactive I, we all seem to be, you can almost visually see people change and soften a little bit. Just that little bit of awareness can help us understand the way that we're engaging with each other. And that, continues to be one of the most important reasons that I find myself in this work is that I just think mindfulness isn't just a personal solve. It's not just a personal contemplative practice anymore, which it can be and it can be a beautiful one, but also the research that's being shown by others um, that I engage with too is just showing its broader capacity at extending our own ability to be compassionate with ourselves and with others, and then also resilient. 
these beautiful results of meditation that we didn't really know how to research and now we know how to do that in a little bit better ways showing mindfulness a byproduct of having a personal mindfulness practice is that we're more compassionate and more resilient and so i think in a world that we know and we can see continues to be so divisive where there's this concept of othering that continues to go on where we put each other into different spaces and disconnect um, I really see that mindfulness practice continues to be a way to interconnect and spend more time on the ways in which we're the same and connected. And we're now starting to see, you know, so much research um, about the effects of of mindfulness, and and we're seeing the applications, as you mentioned, in in educational settings and business settings, um, obviously in our own personal lives. And you've done so much work, um, both on the research side and in the application side. I'm wondering what what's next. What are you still curious about in regards to contemplative practice? What is it that you want to investigate further? I'm really interested in looking at silence in a very specific way. Like you suggested, there's a lot of wonderful research that exists from all of these different programs that have been able to be implemented in this country and in other countries around the globe, in educational settings, in business settings, in clinical settings. Um, in higher education especially, and other areas of education, I'm really interested in gathering these sort of firsthand narratives, if you will, this subjective experience with how people who practice silence personally and then professionally, I really want to begin to understand in, in a deeper way what people can share about what that silence feels like for them and how it exists in their world for them and how they bring it to others. I think contemplative practices can be varied. Mindfulness, there's many different ways to practice mindfulness. And there's different ways to meditate and there's different histories and cultural reflections of that. But I'm really interested in just this world, this word silence and this ability, this innate human ability we have to connect with our own silences. And I'm especially interested in engaging with those questions with others because there are so many that I come into contact with in my work that actually run from or avoid or are fearful of spending time in their own silence. The level to which they distract themselves away from this inner silence is, is very different from the ways in which I see contemplative people look to regain that natural ability to sit in our silence. So it's very curious to me that in a world where the level of mental wellness and peace and balance seems to be at a decreased level for most populations and ages. And also this increased level of distraction that we are afforded with a world that is very tethered to technology. So that connection becomes very interesting to me. Um, and it's it's starting to become well established in research as well with researchers like Matt Killingsworth from Harvard, who did this longitudinal smartphone research study that one of the results of the data he collected with people was that when they accounted for being happy, they also accounted for not being distracted. So that the more distracted people feel, the less happy they feel. 
So my own research with those who have been able to bring mindfulness into their own experience and who, who look to sit in their own silence with intention and purpose, I want to get those firsthand accounts. I want to get that subjective experience and sort of create um, a new understanding of silence in that way based on those experiences. Um, and I would love to do longitudinal work on those who bring it into the field. I have some wonderful students in my classes that are in medical humanities. And these are doctors and nurses and practitioners who have lived in those spaces during this very difficult COVID time. Um, some of them, the stress and burnout has caused them to even have to leave their practice. Um, they're regaining their ability to work in the field with mindfulness in new ways and, and to be able to account for their experience with silence, how they bring it to their patients, how they bring it to their personal life is really just a rich um, field that I'm, that I'm looking forward to diving into more. Aaron, you mentioned this idea that, that there's, the world is getting louder, right? And that it's seemingly, at least from where I sit and, and, I think that others probably feel the same way that the the amount and the level of distractions just keeps increasing um, as a father of two toddlers and um, living a, a, a professional life where there's constant email and there seems to be constant noise. And whenever you pick up your phone, there's there's text messages and emails and all sorts of dings and banners. And it seems like everything is working against any sort of movement to facilitate situations of silence. It seems like the machine and the mechanism that which we've created is is making the barriers to to silence even greater and greater. So how do we how do we you know apart from going into a monastery, how do we facilitate situations in which we can bring more silence into our lives? Uh, yeah, this is such an important question and an important question to keep asking ourselves and asking of ourselves. And I think it's started to become a greater conversation in in the world and in these specific areas of of words and terminology and and organizations even that talk about things like digital detox and digital balance and there's even our Apple devices have this sort of um, ability to track our online time and it's starting to become a more nuanced but spoken of aspect of the way in which we rely on technology. And I think that at, at its core, what, what the first part is just the awareness, right? Uh, for a long time, many of us, and maybe even in our daily lives still, we sort of work, as John Kabat-Zinn would say, on autopilot. And we sort of allow these distractions to continue without our awareness or our awareness of how they affect us. So some of these digital detox tools and practices start to realign our understanding of what we're doing, and by the way, how do we feel while we're doing it? My colleague, Sherry Henderson, and I met in the Masters of Mindfulness program at Leslie back in 2015, and we've continued to do a lot of work together. We've collaborated on creating a little business called Map Mindfulness, where we have been able to create different mindfulness programs for different groups. And one of the things that Sherry and I continue to be passionate about and work on is this exact question. We like to call it digital mindfulness, which just means establishing a strong mindfulness practice and then bringing that spirit of mindfulness and those practices of mindfulness into our digital devices and behaviors. And what we find is when, when you do it in that way, 
the capacity to create the change that one might be looking for with their digital devices, with the way that they feel tethered, is the embodiment. So that in having a silent meditation practice and finding the breath in the body day after day, week after week, there's a certain allotment then to embody the practices in a different way when they come to understanding our digital attachment to it. So that's one way that the question you ask is really going to continue working in, in our world is when we continue to look at it as our awareness around it and making choices. When I work with teens and children, especially around this question, because they have a different relationship with devices than some of us who weren't born into them, I'd like to just remind teenagers especially of who's getting their attention. So first, it's important to teach children and teenagers what it feels like to know where their attention is going. So again, that meditation practice is, uh, embodies their attention. They're able to feel their attention and their awareness and have a stronger and more clear relationship with it. And then being able to make the choice about who they give that attention to. So it's not just this shame and blame area we get into where we get overly attached, and some of us may even use the terminology about addicted to our digital devices and, and different apps, but then having this ability to see that in a clear way and with some self-compassion and kindness and be able to make decisions to step away from that. And what I'm finding in my research with silence and this engagement with, with just pure silence and bringing that into this this big, bigger conversation about autonomy and, and digital devices and, and things like that, is this ability to look at silence and the practicing of our own silence as part of our organic humanity. And that's a term that Sherry and I are talking a lot about these days, because what we're hoping for is that this choice to spend time in our own silence becomes a stronger conduit to maintain and hold on to our organic humanity. In a time where it it seems like it might be um, a good thing to pay attention to, so that the automation and the technology don't take away things from us, like our peace and our well-being and our mental health, without our really having a say in it. Erin, as as a teacher, as a practitioner, as a student of silence, what's next after you finish your doctoral studies at Leslie, working in this area? Where do you see yourself? situating in the field of contemplative pedagogy, in the field of silence, in the field of mindfulness? What do you hope to achieve? Um, that's a great question, and one that probably needs a little bit more of my attention at this point in the, the doctoral studies. Um, what I hope to achieve and where I see myself is possibly just a continued voice in the field of digital balance, in the field of practicing silence, extending this terminology of maintaining our organic humanity as sort of a reminder of our choice in the matter. And the question you just asked about how, you know, we continue to find silence in a world that seems to be getting louder and, and offering more distractions. I think to continue to talk to people and work with people at the graduate level, parents, elementary schools, with just this ability and idea to regain 
their their like or hopefully love of sitting with their own silence and see what unfolds in that space and seeing what it feels like to think about silence as a conduit for organic humanity and, and just being able to make those choices, being able to use our technology when it serves us in good and strong ways and intercommunicating, but also then to choose the word silence when we want to silence our devices, when we want to silence some of those apps that need more of the attention we want to give and sort of regaining our power over that and regaining our love of our own silence. It reminds me of years ago, David Cameron, when he was then um, the head of the British Parliament, they had worked to start a mindfulness initiative for the Parliament and it's part of their government. And I always remember this line he said is, as a base for doing that, was that he noticed that the people were far away from themselves. So I think the place that I see myself with my research and in the field of silence is maybe to just be a voice for silence itself and to share the research so that people start getting closer to themselves. Because the wonderful part of, of mindfulness and the research that exists in today's divisive world is that when we have a better relationship with ourselves, we certainly come into relationship with others in a stronger, more authentic um, more interconnected, more compassionate ways. And we certainly need that more and more. And we're seeing that we still need to serve that disconnect and that divisiveness in new ways. So to be somebody in the field that continues to bring us into stronger relationship with each other and to solve some of the problems that exist with that is certainly where I hope my work goes. Aaron, we, we want to thank you so much for joining us um, here on the Interdisciplinary Investigations podcast. And I'm wondering if if it might make sense for you to, to lead us in a small exercise of silence before we let you go would that, how does that sound? Yes. Yes. I would love that. When I talk about silence, it's usually very interesting to be able to bring people into their own silence as part of the discussion. So yeah, sure. Why don't we um, just take an opportunity to practice a minute of silence together here and shift our awareness that is usually on our thinking mostly, and just take our awareness to our body breathing, finding the breath in our body, following the in-breath, following the out-breath, just doing our breath to bring all of our awareness to our body breathing, and also that silent space that exists between the in-breath and the out-breath. And now we can bring our awareness back from our breath into the present moment, remembering that as we walk away from silent practice, remembering that we always have that little silent space between the in-breath and the out-breath. Aaron, thank you so much for, for your time and for your wisdom. And I remember 
one thing that stuck with me in so many of our conversations and discussions um, in preparation for, for this recording was this idea that silence is a tool that we always has at, have at our disposal, that we can always utilize no matter where we are, what we're doing, or who we're interacting with. We can always use that tool of silence. So thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Thank you for listening to the Interdisciplinary Investigations podcast hosted by me, Jeff Perrin. Thank you to Half Moon Island for providing our intro and outro music. Please rate, review, and check out all of our episodes wherever you stream your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.